Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Charthus. I've been thinking a lot about taste lately. It's a word with so many different meanings. The primary one, where this all starts, is what I suppose I have to call gustatory taste. What does something taste like? Beyond sweet, salty and all that, does it remind you of green grass, a fusty library? Is it vibrant or dull? And that's the sense of taste in which the old Romans said there's no arguing about taste. Because if taste is about what's happening on my tongue, in my nose, in my brain, how can you possibly have anything worthwhile to say about it? And yet, I'm happy to skip directly to using taste as a judgment. My taste is better than yours. The things I like are objectively better than the things you like. And you're a lesser human being because you like things that I don't. And now we're talking about good taste and bad taste. And that's a really big question. Good taste and bad taste sets up a hierarchy. Is that justified? All this ruminating springs from a book called Food Fights, a collection of essays about the history of big topics in food studies, like taste. There's more about the book in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. But one of the editors is Chad Luddington, who was on the podcast a few years ago, talking about how the Irish were responsible for some of the great wines of France. Chad's chapter in Food Fights is about the standard of taste debate. How do we decide what tastes best? It's preceded by a chapter that asks, can taste be separated from social class? by Margot Finn, who teaches food studies at the University of Michigan. So this is the first in a mini-series about taste. Definitely two episodes, and maybe three, starting with Margot Finn. And because it pays to make sure we're at least starting off from the same place, what does Margot Finn mean by taste? I mean, I think I use it like many people do in multiple ways. So I'm happy to talk about whether or not I think something tastes good or bad. And I'll also refer to people having good taste or refined taste, and I, and I have a sense of what that means. I, 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 this question is making me think about the, the difference between the way we talk about foods and the way we talk about other things that we might consume, about which you could have good or bad taste, right? So you can have good or bad taste in music. But the fact is... Um Although, you know, it's a cliche to say, um, I can't stand his taste in music or, or whatever it might be. Um, it kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't impinge on me if you happen to like music I don't like. But there's something very visceral about you having bad taste in food. You're right. There may be more. I think that's, I think that's really astute. There's a greater assumption that other people will share your taste in food, even though, of course, we, we all have experiences where that doesn't happen, right? Where you're eating with somebody and they have a very different perception of, of the thing that you might both be consuming. So we, we know that not everybody is you know, necessarily experiencing things the same way. And yet I think there is a greater expectation that if I think something is delicious, other people will also think that that, that is delicious and maybe then more of a sense of affront if that turns out to not be true. I mean, is taste in fact, taste in food, um, is that completely subjective? I think it's really hard to talk about complete subjectivity 
um, when it comes to taste and perception. It's easy to find the examples that make us back away from saying that taste is utterly objective, exists only in the food, and everybody who tastes the food will necessarily have the same perception of it. Of course, there are genetic differences, like super tasters, and those people for whom coriander leaf, cilantro, tastes like soap. It is interesting that even with cilantro, right, it's not like 15% of the population thinks it tastes like something awful, but a thousand awful things, right? Some people think it's metallic. Some people think it's... No, everybody who doesn't like it seems to agree that it tastes like soap. Um, so, you know, for every experience of food, we fall somewhere between I'm a human who has receptors that tell me sweet things are generally positive and nice. And also, um, you know, this particular sweet thing is something that my mother cooked, and so it has an entirely different kind of sweetness. And on the other side of the coin, this thing tastes bitter, and when I was a kid I wouldn't have eaten it, but I've learned to like it, um, so I've changed my tastes as a result of something or other. You can learn to like things. Of course, yeah. Almost everybody has that experience, right, of, of coming to like something that they did not initially. But if taste is highly subjective, doesn't that sort of put an end to discussions of what, what, what constitutes good taste or better taste? Uh, <laughs> um, in some ways, that sort of sounds um, idealistic to me. To if, if we could be so tolerant of the possibility that other people would have different taste experiences that we would not judge them for, for having those taste experiences. But I think the judgment actually comes more from um, cultural hierarchies, social hierarchies, than it does from any, anything inherent in the food or even the experience of tasting and, and judging food. The upper levels of those social hierarchies took it upon themselves to educate the lower orders in the matter of food. It's an effort that really got going around the 1870s, at the start of America's Gilded Age. So one of the things that you see in the Gilded Age is there's a sense that we're going to Americanize people, new immigrants particularly, by introducing them to American foods. Um, and, and also a sense that, you know, the poor need help in learning how to eat right, how to make both economically right choices and nutritionally right choices. But there wasn't a strong sense that you were going to have these people eat like the rich. There, there was sort of, you know, we want you to eat like Americans and we want you to eat good, nutritious food that will make you strong, productive workers. But there was also a sense that, they, that it would not be appropriate to teach um, working class women in like the Boston cooking school um, how to make really fancy meals. In part, there was a sense that, that these different classes just wanted different things. The working classes would have kind of basic foods, but the Harvard crew team would need some frills, like strawberry shortcake or, or whatever. The sense that working people wanted hearty foods, whereas more delicate foods that would, wouldn't fill you up as much could be served to the upper classes. And, that, and what was interesting with the crew team example is even then they, there was a kind of acknowledgement that, oh yeah, that's, these guys are athletes doing hard work, we have to feed them well. But because they were seen as being of a different class, they were seen as having different desires, like for strawberry shortcake. I'm, I'm interested to pursue the question of assimilating immigrants, um, partly because immigrant foodways are bound to be different because before they immigrated, they they were living in, in very different cultures. So what was the basis for saying, oh, you shouldn't be eating spicy food or you shouldn't be eating 
pickles or whatever it might be. Was was there a, a pseudoscientific basis for that? Frequently, yeah. With the spicy foods and pickles, um, there was a, a dominant idea that bland foods were better for you, that spicy food. This came from, uh, it was largely influenced by sort of Puritan uh, nutritional ideology. So, um Sylvester Graham and Harvey Kellogg probably being the, the most famous of the people who, who pushed these ideas. And it was both nutritional, but it was also spiritual. It would cause people to pursue other kinds of, um, of, of bodily pleasures rather than focusing their minds on God, you know, and a higher power and spirituality. There was a real concern that spicy food, this was directly laid out in a lot of their writings, that spicy foods would make people more likely to masturbate. It would it kind of excite all these desires that they would then, um, and so they would do these sinful things. Um, so that's where some of that came from. So then it went along with attitudes towards immigrants too. The, this um, general sense that they were um, that had, they had these passions that they would pursue, that they were more lustful, possibly lazier as well. It, it, all of the stereotypes that, that get applied to marginalized populations. And so that was reflected in the attitudes towards the food, too, the idea that they craved these exciting pickles and spicy flavors and couldn't moderate their appetites for those things the way an appropriate um, kind of American would, would do. So the, the taste education that they tried to do with immigrants, right, to try to get them to eat these bland foods was, was a way of trying to bring people together to create a common culture, but also to, um, to try and tame these sorts of, uh, sometimes they were called unnatural appetites, other times they were portrayed as appetites that were too natural and then needed to be brought into civilization, but however they were framed, excessive um, and, and immoral kinds of behaviors that were linked to diet and, and attitudes about whole national groups of people. Ah, but that was then, I hear you say. We love immigrant food today, at least versions that suit our taste. We don't go in for meddling with people's taste in foods anymore. Now the, the behavior modification and the idea that we're going to improve people's behaviors through improving their eating is primarily oriented towards obesity prevention, getting people to avoid fast food and junk food with the idea that you will make them thinner. But there's often implicit ideas about how you're going to make them better citizens and really have that same kind of discipline that ex extends throughout their life if you can get their eating habits in order. So there is a lot of moralization of, of junk food and fast food, and I think that's where the attention is now on how to, how to change people's eating to change their other behaviors. One of the accusations against junk food and industrial food is that precisely by carefully engineering taste flavors flavors um they are actually tapping into something that is maybe universal and that that's actually why people are so fond of them because in some strange sense they do taste really good i think junk foods do taste really good to most to a lot of people you know i think they are designed in that way that that's not wrong but i think that's true of all kinds of foods that um, and whether or not they're produced industrially or you know like a I think a homemade creme brulee hits many of the same things that any you know industrial fast food dessert would but there's more moral concern about the latter and that suggests to me that it's not really about the fat and the sugar and what those do to how much you want to eat them but what kinds of status the food has. I think the homemade creme brulee just doesn't 
get attacked <laughs> in, in the same way, even if it's just as delicious, addictive, whatever, you know, if it would make you eat even when you're not hungry, just as much as a, a fast food ice cream cone would. So good taste is about status? Um, I, I think it's almost always inflected by status, yes. But then the, the accusation of, oh, you're a foodie, is, is kind of a put-down of... Oh, is it a put-down of high status or is it a put-down of pretentiousness? I think it's a put-down of pretentiousness. I think the reason people are so... From the, from the time the word was coined, it, it had that sort of um, slur quality to it, a little bit like yuppie. Right. From the time that term was invented, it was pejorative. And I think that's because there's, there is a real policing of the idea of class climbing, getting above your station, um, a real discomfort with the idea that people might aspire to or perform a class above where they are. Um, and then there's also, on the, on the flip side, a real sense that it's quite rude to look down on other people. So even though this, ha right, this happens constantly, and yet that is not... That's, we're not comfortable with those judgments. And so I think both sides of it, both the pretension and also the kind of um, the idea of snobbery and looking down on other people, both of those are, are seen as, as things we should not do. It's, it's pretty interesting, though, because when I, when I look inside myself, I do judge what I consider to be bad taste in food. And I do think that the food I prefer is better than the food those people prefer. Um, I know this sounds like a stupid question, but it, is there any sense in which you can say that good food tastes better? You mean to everybody? Maybe even just to the person who's saying it, me, I, you. Oh, I absolutely think people can make confident pronouncements about their own taste. Even if those things would change, you know, whether over a lifetime or, or, or quickly even. I don't think that, you know, I don't think there's a sense that, like, I can't say, yes, I prefer this or that. But to, to, to assume that those things are, are, exist outside of me, right, that that preference has meaning outside of me, um, I'm not sure why it would. Neither am I. And yet I can't help myself. Margot Finn of the University of Michigan, helping me to navigate some of the tricky waters around good taste, bad taste, delicious tastes. My thanks to Margot Finn. And as I said, this is the first in a mini-series about taste. Next time, I'll be talking to Chad Luddington about how tastes in alcoholic beverages change with circumstances and how what you like to drink says so much about you. Before that, though, do you have any thoughts on taste? Changing tastes, good taste? Drop me a line, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or on Twitter at eatpodcast. You can also join the discussion through Lyceum, a new podcast listening app available from lyceum.fm. You can always leave a comment at the show notes, eatthispodcast.com where I'll put details of Food Fights, the book of essays that sparked these episodes. For now, though, from Eat This Podcast and me, Jeremy Churfus, goodbye, and thanks for listening.